0: Uh, Noel always getting us started for our recording, so uh, let it go and we'll start. Noel, thank you. For those of you who haven't been here, <laughs> we've been doing a, uh, an alphabet series that is uh, a different topic each Sunday school class, and we're up to the letter L, and we're going to do Lordship, the Lordship of Christ. And speak about what's commonly called Lordship Salvation a little bit, too. So that will be our L word for today. Uh, Though, again, it's the Sunday before Christmas, but I thought we're going to have a real Christmassy service in the next hour. And so uh, I didn't think this topic would would stick out too much if we just continued on in that. So uh, we'll talk about the Lordship of Christ. You know, we have had a problem in our lifetime with worldliness in the church. Uh, and uh, it has grown and, and continues to grow to where the, the culture around us and the world around us seems to creep into the church. As a matter of fact, some describe, you know, the, the world is on a decline and will be until Christ returns. And though the world is going down, the church isn't that far behind it, <laughs> only a few steps behind, it seems like. Throughout history, uh, there, are, there were many places, countries, where uh, you had a state church, a union of church and state. And in those places, the, the state church baptized babies into the membership of the church, and then they uh, hoped that through confirmation and other types of membership procedures, people would sign up as Christians. Well, in those kind of situations, of course, you're going to have a lot of worldliness in the church because everyone in the community is in the church. A matter of fact, every member of the, of the country almost is in the church. Uh, in England, you, you know, it was the Church of England baptized as a baby, of course, in Catholic countries, also even in Lutheran uh, land. And so uh, that caused a lot of independent thinkers uh, to say, this, this isn't right, there, it, it shouldn't be this way. And so our forefathers, not just Baptists, but others as well, said, no, salvation should come first, and when salvation comes, then baptism should follow and then membership should happen so that you have a regenerate church membership, not just everyone in the land uh, having been baptized or christened as a baby is now not only a member of the church, but a member of the country, citizen. Uh, so b- infant baptism became the same as polling. Uh, you had to register like we have a birth certificate. They had to do that, but it was called their, it was at their christening. So uh, our forefathers said, no, we need to have a pure church. We need to have a church where worldliness does not reign. Well, in our kinds of churches then, uh, since that time and, and on, uh, we have been uh, having to deal with what about when we have worldliness in the church? What about when we have people who have made professions of faith been baptized and and uh, and come into the church on that profession of faith? Uh, what do we do with the worldliness in the church? Well, because of that controversy and that history, uh, we have been faced in our lifetime in the second half of the uh, of the 20th century especially, and now into the 21st, with what has become uh, called as lordship salvation. And and we've had this controversy over uh, the lordship of Christ. When does it come? When do you demand that of people? When can we say to people, uh, Christ needs to be Lord? So we've had this controversy. Now let me say, I do not hold to what is called lordship salvation, uh, but I certainly hold to the lordship of Christ. And so usually in our Baptist circles, uh, we've been cautious about this, but it's fair to say up front that there there are good people, and no doubt many in Baptist circles, uh, though I would think the majority of Baptists would not be this, uh, but it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian if you if you hold to a lordship uh, view of, of salvation, uh, so a lot of good people do, uh, usually the more Calvinistic and hyper Calvinistic someone becomes, uh, it seems that they lean a little more toward the lordship view. Uh, the, the most well known name today is John MacArthur, who holds to, uh, really pushes lordship salvation. And and largely because of his Calvinism. But we have some sympathy for that view. Let me explain in a real nutshell. Lordship salvation is more the idea that in order for a person to come to Christ, he needs to understand that he's got to make Jesus Lord. And unless he's willing to make Christ Lord, he's not willing to accept him as a Savior. Whereas the opposite of that would be a person needs to accept Christ as Savior before he can even understand the Lordship of Christ. Then once you have the Holy Spirit, now you can make Jesus Lord. So there's kind of a, not a whole lot of difference there, but a significant difference in the way the gospel is presented and the way that it's preached. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for for those who... who uh, hold the lordship because generally they are very concerned about worldliness in the church uh you know and if uh people are going to make a profession of faith and go on living like they've lived before they got saved then what good is that why didn't they make christ lord see and uh they want to make the lost count the cost uh you know, it's going to cost you to believe in Christ, and you need to know that up front. But the problem becomes when those who hold to that view kind of have hoops, so to speak, to jump through. Maybe you have a problem with some something like smoking or drinking or, or something like that. Do you need to put that away before you can get saved? Or do you need to get saved so that you can put that away? That's kind of a easy way of saying it so if those hoops get to be very large and you're saying to people uh you need to realize that if you're going to get saved you can't do that and you can't do that and you've got to quit this and you've got to become this and you've got to do all of these things and a person says well then i don't want to be saved well in a way you have sympathy for that i mean you, you know uh you do you know what it is to become a christian Is there any repentance in it? We have to make sure there's repentance in salvation, and that's been a real problem. But on the other hand, you're speaking to a person that doesn't have the Holy Spirit and doesn't know Christ. He can't figure how he could put these things away. He doesn't want to put these things away. So that becomes the issue. And then on the other side is a, a very firm conviction that salvation cannot contain your good works. You can't be asking a person to perform something in order to be saved. If you're asking them to perform putting away a bad habit or doing something uh, even in a positive way in order to say, okay, now I'm ready to be saved, then you've added some kind of works to that faith. So both of those concerns are there and good people attack it from two different sides is what I'm saying. But I think that the, uh, uh, that the side, to me, uh, of lordship salvation has a greater error, if you will. There might be two culprits in this, in creating this lordship controversy in our lifetime. So the, the first one would be easy believism. That is, maybe we have been so anxious to get people saved, to have them sign their name on the dotted line, that we have accepted professions of faith when they weren't ready to believe. And so since there is not true salvation there, because maybe there wasn't repentance there, then you have this person who's professing to be a believer, but they're really not a believer, sin shows up again in their life. They live the way that they've always lived. And then how do we get this worldliness in the church, you know? And we have seen that in our lifetime. And so we see in the church today, Christians not separated at all from the world, living no different than they did before they got saved. And we say to ourselves, how did they get saved? (laughs) Did they really get saved? And, and I don't know about you but if if you are a soul winner at all if you've given the gospel to people at all uh, you're probably uh, as I am and that is I have a bunch of of converts for the Lord and I have a bunch of converts for Rick Schrader <laughs> and the latter aren't too good <laughs> you know if if I just get them to go through the sinner's prayer because I I'm anxious to lead someone to the Lord, but they're not ready to be saved and they're not really sincere about it, then they're not going to make Christ Lord either, even before or after their salvation experience. So easy believism has, has uh, come, uh, come to that. And uh, we have experienced, especially in the last 50 to 60 years, if I use the term evangelism game, would you not be offended? I I mean, in the sense that we were so anxious to build the biggest churches, so anxious to have the largest attendances, uh, to be able to say, we saw more people saved, we saw more people baptized, that, uh, you know, we had a way of going out on visitation and with 50 people going out on visitation, and if you didn't come back having won someone to the Lord, you were just second-rate soul winner, you know? And uh, I have to confess that it wasn't hard. If I if I was a an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old, I could go to a park somewhere and find an eight-year-old and get him to pray the sinner's prayer. I could threaten to beat him up or whatever, you know, I I didn't do that, but I mean, you know, this big, this older guy comes and talks to him and says, once you do this, and, and before he's done, I've prayed with him. So I go back to the church, and I say, hey, I won, you know, two or three people to the Lord. Well, maybe I did, maybe I didn't, you know. Uh, and not only just eight-year-olds, but others that make professions of faith never follow through with baptism never follow through coming to the lord's house don't care about the things of the lord and you say to yourself did they really get saved now at the same time there's the problem of discipleship and so we have we have come back with well you know maybe we aren't discipling people either maybe we people truly get saved but we leave them out there and we don't follow up on them we don't bring them in and we don't teach them and so if we don't do that, they may not live for the Lord, and they could truly be saved and just be remain babes in Christ for a long time. So you see the controversy, and that, that has happened in our lifetime, and and people are trying to solve it in in different ways. Now the other culprit, on the other hand, is uh is lordship a certain form of legalism? I mean, are we telling someone that uh who uh, say say uh has smoked all our lives and we say well you know if you're going to become a Christian you got to quit smoking well he says I don't know if I can I've tried a lot of times quit smoking and uh, we say well if you if if, when you're ready to make Christ Lord of your life then you can be saved and he goes away saying what is that you know or do we lead someone to the Lord and say now that you have the Holy Spirit now that you accept the Word of God now you have the power in you to put away things that are harmful to you and, and a bad testimony and so forth. So uh, that, does that form of legalism uh, come in? I, I know that uh, I remember one church that you know didn't believe that, that ladies ought to ever wear slacks, ought to always wear dresses. And so the church had paper skirts when you came in the church if you were in pants they could put a paper skirt around you so that you could stay in their church service that morning is that the way we should do it they also had buses all over chicago and had people baptized every sunday see and so you know they did it um I think sometimes we in that legalism we separate repentance from faith repentance and faith are necessary and and those of us who don't hold to lordship salvation as such are often accused of of uh having no repentance with our faith no i i would argue the other as a matter of fact if you separate the repentance and the faith what you're saying is show me your repentance even if it's like in the old uh, charismatic churches, come to the altar and pray through. And if I see the agony, if I see the praying through, if we see the tears, then you're ready to be saved. You know, kind of do the, do the repentance process first and let us see that. And if we see it, then we'll lead you to the Lord. You know, does, do, does Lordship salvation do that? Kind of separate the repentance from the faith too far, so to speak. Another thing that happens is confusing law, gospel, and grace. I'm gonna, I, I need to buy Dr. Myron Houghton's book on uh, law and gospel and, and uh, have it for sale over here in our book rack because it's, it's the best thing recently written on these things. And what he does is, rather than just, we often talk about law and, God, law and grace, you know, and we think about Old Testament, New Testament, law and grace. He, he uh, defines it in three ways, law, gospel, and grace. And what he means is, sure, there was the law, though, by the way, even we dispensationalists do not believe people were saved by keeping the law. But the law of, of Moses existed for 1,500 years. They had to do it or they were out of fellowship with God. But the law showed you that you were a sinner. You tried to keep the law. You couldn't do it. It showed that you were a sinner. So law, in, even in the scripture, when you read it, proves to you that you're a sinner. Now, gospel comes along next. The, when you hear the gospel, it is without works. As a matter of fact, what the, what the gospel says is you cannot work. You cannot do anything for your salvation. You can't perform something in order to be saved. The gospel comes with, uh, with God's regeneration, and when you hear it and accept it, the Holy Spirit regenerates you, and then he takes up residence in you. That's the gospel. Makes no demands of you. But then there's grace. Grace. And grace makes demands of us. Grace makes demands after the gospel has done its work. Yes, we're saved by grace. But understand that after you're saved, you now as believers are living under the grace of God. And guess what? You have a New Testament. Read it. What does it ask you to do? And the bottom line will be, it asks a lot of you and some pretty hard things of you and it never lets up (laughs) you know as you grow in grace it keeps adding grow in grace you keep it keeps making demands of you so is that legalism no it's not legalism if it's not connected to salvation now uh as as a little side note here those of us who grown up as fundamentalists and conservatives Uh, Have often been accused of legalism simply because we might say to other believers We need to put away these things that are bad testimonies We need to put away things that are harming our bodies and so forth. Oh, that's legalism No, it's not unless you're saying you need to do this to get saved or do this to stay saved If you're doing something to get saved or something to stay saved, then it would be legalism If you're just saying as a christian, you ought to do this it's not attached to your salvation, then that's not legalism, technically speaking, of course. All right. So let me uh, ask you to turn to a few passages beginning in Ephesians, and uh, I'm going to make two broad points here, and we'll go down through some verses, all right? The first broad point I want to make is we must preach saviorhood to the lost, and secondly, We'll get to in a little bit. We must preach lordship to the saved. You understand what I said? We have to preach saviorhood to the lost. You need to be saved, and then once a person, people are saved, and we're speaking to Christians, then we must preach lordship of Christ. And I think that's the way the Bible presents it: law, then gospel, then grace. All right. So we must preach saviorhood to the lost. First of all, and let's see, I have five thoughts here. A lost person is dead to any spiritual interest. Ephesians 2:1 and many verses in chapter two. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Verse 12. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. So how do we approach someone like that and say, you need to do these things in order to qualify for salvation? Even if we're saying counting the cost, how can someone get themselves in that position to be saved? My first thought is a lost person is dead to any spiritual interest. They need to understand their lostness and they need to throw themselves upon the mercy of Christ and ask for salvation. Then they will have spiritual interest. Then they will be able to do those kinds of things. Secondly, In verses 8 and 9 of this chapter, of course, no work is necessary and we have to be careful that we don't add works to salvation, for by grace he is saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, that is, salvation is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. You can't boast about anything when you got saved. You, You can't say, well, I did this or I did that or I put away this. You can't boast anything when you got saved. Thirdly, in verse 10, uh, repentance is part of but not separate from faith. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, not because of, not along with good works, which he hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let me go back to that point and say it again. Repentance is part of but not separated from faith. Repentance and faith go together. Salvation is is a two-sided coin, and when you look at a coin, you have heads and you have tails, but you can't put the heads over here and the tails over here. (laughs) Wherever you put the coin, it has to go together, and repentance and faith is is exactly that way. It's kind of like this door over here, if you put above the door on this side repentance, and above the door on the other side, faith, you're still walking through one door, but it's got two sides to it. So no one comes to Christ and asks Christ to save them without knowing that they need to be saved, without saying, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved. And really what law does to us before we're saved is it condemns us. We look at the the Scripture... And we look at what the Scripture is teaching, and then we say to ourselves, there's no way I can do that. There's there's no way that describes me. I'm I'm lost and I'm undone. If that's what a Christian is, I'm certainly not a Christian. And that's what the law should do to you. That's the way you should look at things. So you come to Christ undone with no uh, righteousness of your own and say, I need your righteousness, okay? So repentance can't be separated. Now, if we're, if we're waiting around for people to repent or waiting around for people to show uh, you know, some positive thing, we may wait forever. As a matter of fact, that positive thing may be a show of self-righteousness anyway. But there's a fine line here. I keep putting a caveat here, I realize. There's a fine line because, as I said, if you've ever led a person to the Lord and afterwards doubted if they were really saved, you go back in your mind to that point and you say, what happened? And sometimes my conclusion is, we were having this conversation, we were talking about Christ, but I'm looking at him and I'm listening to them, and I kind of said, don't you want to do this And maybe from the way I said it, they said, well, okay. When I should have waited to see if there was any willingness in them to say, hey, can I do that? I'm ready to be saved. You see the difference? Now, I I think that's proper and we should be careful when we're trying to lead someone to the Lord. And even sometimes when you try to be careful like that, still you don't see anything happen after a after a confession because the prayer you know saying the words doesn't save you there's no magic formula abracadabra and you've said this and therefore you have to be saved god god is required then to save you because you said certain words and, and back in the old easy believeism days when we'd go out as teenagers and lead 20 little kids to the Lord, basically that's all we were after. Say this prayer and God's obligated to save you, kind of. Well, so we have to be careful about that. We understand. But that's not the same as lordship, and yet maybe some of the lordship people would say it's the same thing. You know know what I'm saying? I think they're trying to solve that same problem. They're just going about it a little different way. Fourthly, let's go back in in Romans. I have chapter 4, verses uh, verses, uh, 4 and 5. A lost person will respond to a challenge, but maybe he's responding the wrong way. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Chapter 4, verse 4 of Romans in other words, you could present the gospel as Paul is here in Romans, and then he says, but there's still some people who work, and if they work, then, then God would be giving them a reward for their work, not blessing them with grace. Or, you know, in, in, in uh, chapter 6 and verse 23, the wages is death, but the gift of God, so you've got to understand, too, that a lost person's nature is I can get saved by my works. If I'm good enough, I'll go to heaven. If I do the right things, then I'll be saved. You can't feed that is what I'm saying. You can't, you can't let them do that. And lordship has a tendency to begin that process. Oh, I can do that. I can, do, I can be good enough on my own to be saved. We have to be careful because a lost person's nature is to do that. And we can't let them do that. And then also, uh, and uh, fifthly I guess, we must not use lordship to screen lost people. Well, you, you can be saved and you can't. You're ready, you're not. Uh, you, you have the qualifications, you don't. Maybe Romans 3:10 through 12 is a good reminder. There is none righteous, no not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, I mentioned uh, at the beginning. Uh, Dr. MacArthur's, uh, I would call it hyper-Calvinism, but strong Calvinism anyway. He's surely a five-point Calvinist, if you know what I mean. And I have read, I don't know how many of his books. I have a shelf full of his books, and I like to read him, and I like his commentary still, and I I have heard him in person, spoken to him a couple of times. And and so I have great respect for him, and I have a lot of friends who, who follow him very avidly, more than I do. But I heard him say once, with these ears, I heard him say, out of his mouth, in defending his view on lordship salvation, he put it this way. He said, I'm not, I'm not so concerned about getting the elect saved as I am about keeping the non-elect from thinking they're saved. Now, that says, to me, says a lot. It explains a lot of his position. If the elect are elect and going to get saved, I don't have to worry too much about him. But I don't want these non-elect people to make some profession of faith and think that they're saved, and they're non-elect. They can't be saved because they're not elect. And therefore, if you build the wall a little higher, they can't jump through it. And I don't want them to. See what I'm saying? So I thought that was a pretty, pretty telling statement. Now, Charles Ryrie, whom you, you know that name, of course, uh, and he holds the other view, a view that, that I'm more akin to anyway, and in his book called Balancing the Christian Life, he said, the message of faith only and the message of faith plus commitment of life cannot both be the gospel. One of them is a false gospel. I've even heard Ryrie and MacArthur debate this subject. It's kind of interesting. And very graciously, both Christian men and, you know, probably friends, quote-unquote, and I remember even Dr. MacArthur saying about Dr. Ryrie, he said, well, he, he ought to know something. After all, he's got his own Bible. <laughs> that was when he had the Ryrie Study Bible, and now MacArthur's got his own Bible, so now now they're even. All right. So my first thought here is that uh, we must preach Saviorhood to the lost. Christ needs to be your Savior. You are a sinner, and you can't do anything yourself. You need to be you need Christ as your Savior. And if that person sees their need, then that repentance causes them to believe. A repentance separated from faith does not save. It may take a person through a lot of anguish, but it doesn't save them. Okay? So secondly, second thought is, we must preach lordship to the saved. Um, in uh, Hebrews eleven thirteen. I'm going to use, uh, I don't know Latin myself, but I know a few Latin words. (laughs) And I've used these words to describe salvation before, if you remember. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Remember that? And even a fourth one, confessus. But notitia is knowledge. You have to know something in order to be saved, that's why we send out missionaries. That's why we preach the gospel, because if they don't hear, then they're never going to be saved, Romans 10 says, right? So, Notitia has to be there. No one gets saved out there in the backside of Africa or somewhere who's never heard the gospel just because God feels sorry for them. God has sent his son, and God has sent his gospel, and they must hear it. So, Notitia is first. Then there is a census, which means I give assent to something. So if you hear the gospel and the gospel says you're a sinner and you say, no, I'm not, then you're not giving assent to the gospel. The gospel says Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died for you, was buried, but rose again the third day. And you say, I don't believe that. Then you're not giving assent to the gospel. So, a census has to be there after the notitia. After the knowledge, you have to believe it. You have to say, I think that's true. Fiducia, then, is that word, uh, you you know, uh, what's the Marine call, simplify, you know, always faithful. Fiducia is the faith. You can hear the gospel, you can even give mental assent to the gospel without having fiducia, without committing yourself to the gospel. All right, I explained those three things to say. Our first thought here is repentance will happen between the ascensus and the fiducia. In other words, you hear the gospel, you give assent to it, and now you're thinking about it. Now you're saying, I wonder if I should do that. You're you're thinking, do I need that gospel? And then all of a sudden your sinfulness hits you and you realize you can do nothing. And you realize, I need to be saved. I'm a sinner. And so having heard it, having understood it, all of a sudden you grasp it. You reach out. You ask Christ to save you. You come to that moment of salvation. But that repentance comes in between those two. You remember when you got saved? I do. I was only 11 years old, sitting in a large church in Cincinnati, and, and I had grown up in church, and as a matter of fact, even made a false profession when I was nine, you know? I've been in Sunday school class and all the rest. And having made that false profession, I'm sitting in church as an 11-year-old, and all of a sudden I hear this gospel message, and I realize, I, have, I am not saved. I went through motions, but I did not commit myself to the Lord. I knew the gospel. I agreed with it all. But that repentance comes at that point to say, I need salvation. And so then you reach out and you accept Christ with fiducia. All right? And by the way, then, then the confession of it comes after that even because once you're saved, your mouth confesses what you, what you believed. You, you can't wait to tell people about it you don't have any problem confessing it after that. All right. Then also uh, you rem- and oh I was I had you turn to Hebrews 11:13 where you have this these concepts. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having number 1 seen them afar off. That's the notitia. They were persuaded of them. That's the fiducia or I mean uh, the assensus and embrace them, that's the fiducia, and then confess, that's the fourth one, confessing the faith. And there are many places in the New Testament where that concept is is displayed. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, you have a simple formula for salvation. Remember, Paul says to these people that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So, secondly in turning to god we turn away from sin so when you say i'm going to accept christ as savior you you are facing this way away from christ to your own life to your own sin and and christ is over here so you turn to god from your idols or from sin to god there has to be that return that turning repentance is a a turning again Uh, those kinds of words combine the idea of turning with to something and from something and so that's what that is all right so uh i'm trying to emphasize that that saying that you deny lordship salvation doesn't mean that you don't have any repentance to your faith doesn't mean that there, there's no consequences you understand why you need faith okay and then an uh, interesting verse in the book of Acts, if you would go there to Acts 18, uh, 19. Ryrie uh, points this out in his book, and I think it's worth looking at. You remember Acts 19 is the when Paul was in Ephesus, and he came back to Ephesus. Apollos had been there preached, and he came back, and there were people who had believed but had not been baptized, and so they get baptized, if you remember, 12 men. And so he stays in Ephesus for two years, verse 10, and preaches so that everyone hears the gospel. Then there is this problem of what's going on in the church at Ephesus until you get down to uh, verse 19, for example, many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. There was a book burning here. And they counted the price and found it 50,000 pieces of silver, 50,000 days wages. That's how much they had spent on on books of magic and, and black art and so forth. But if you back up to verse 18... It says, many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds, and many of them which used curious and so forth. See, it says many that believed. That, that is what we call a perfect tense. And, it, and a perfect tense gives us the action that they had believed at one time in the past, and they were still believing. So many of them that had believed for a while were using these curious arts and doing things that were of the devil, really. And when they realized it all, they put them away and burned all that stuff and realized how much money they had wasted. So here are Christians, is what I'm saying, that had not made Christ Lord yet. But lordship came into their lives when they were explained the truth and they, they responded to the truth and said, well, if that's what we should do as Christians, then we will we'll put this stuff away even though it's cost us a bunch of money. And so they put it away. I think that's a good expression of how uh, you, can ha- you can be a believer and be carnal. And we all know it. <laughs> Uh, because we all have been at times in our lives. That doesn't mean that you're not saved. It means that you need to, to make Christ Lord of your life again. Okay? And then um, we also should remember, lastly here, that uh, Christian sanctification has to come after Christian justification. You, you can't put sanctification before justification. You have to come to Christ and be justified so that you can walk with him, so that you can grow in him. You can't talk about sanctification with a lost person. He just can't do it. And that's common. And Romans 8 and other passages explain that. All right, let me, uh, let me end by reading you uh, a short paragraph from Lewisberry Schaefer, C-H-A-F-E-R. Lewisberry Schaefer was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, and and that's where Ryrie, of course, taught. And so uh, the founder, who founded it back near the beginning of the 20th century, uh, wrote these things, and it's written into their bylaws and so forth. So Dallas Seminary has always been kind of non-lordship salvation point of view, and very dispensational, pre-trib, pre-millennial, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's why there's always been kind of they have been the ones to defend the point of view that I'm giving to you. So Schaeffer wrote that many years ago: the most subtle, self-satisfying form of works of merit is, after all, found to be an engaging feature in this practice of applying to unbelievers the lordship of Christ. What more could God expect than that the creatures of his hand should, be suppo- should by supposed surrender be attempting to be obedient to him? In such idealism, the darkened mind of the unsaved, no doubt, sees dimly some possible advantage in submitting their lives to the guidance of a supreme being of whom they really know nothing. Such notions are only human adjustments to God and resemble in no way the terms of divine adjustment, which first condemns man and rejects all his supposed merit and then offers a perfect and eternal salvation to the helpless sinner on no other terms than that one believe on Christ as his or her savior. I think that's a good way to put it. All right, so Lordship salvation. We haven't heard the end of it. Maybe you didn't hear the beginning of it, uh, but it will be around. And, and again, let me say, we're not, this is an in-house argument. Uh, we're, we're mostly arguing with, with people who, who know Christ as Savior, who do not believe you work for your salvation, who do not believe you can lose your salvation. So we, we're not saying that of people. But there also are a lot of of legalists who do believe you have to work for your salvation, who do believe you can lose it, who also use lordship, and we have to be very careful of that too. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, studying your word and reminding us of these things. Father, uh, as we know you as our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we, we know you as Lord, and we want to make you the Lord of our lives in every way. And so, Father, as we read your word and your spirit encourages us to change and conform to it, we pray that you would help us do that. And, Father, we are concerned with the worldliness both outside and inside the church, and we are concerned about those who don't understand salvation and go through motions that really don't save. So, Father, give us all wisdom and help us to understand this needy subject And help us to be better soul winners because of it, more careful witnesses of the gospel. May you be glorified by it all, and we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you for being here this morning.